Welcome to How to Ruin Your Own Reputation, the show where I talk to people who either have unusual jobs or have chosen to live lives that most people don't quite understand. This is going to be another interesting show because my guest spent decades working in a career that isn't so much unusual as it is maybe a little controversial, especially these days. Vic Ferrari is a former New York City police officer who spent 10 years as a detective with auto theft and narcotics. He is now the author of a series of books that take us behind the scenes of those experiences. I've started the series, I finished NYPD Law and Disorder, and I have a lot of questions and Vic's got a lot of stories. So we're just gonna jump right in. Hello, Vic, thanks for being here. Marcy, thank you. And thanks Chantel, your producer for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. You ready to ruin your reputation with me? I Listen, no one can ruin <laughs> my reputation more than I can ruin it, trust me. There you go. I totally relate. As I said, I have a bunch of questions, but the first thing I want to ask is when you were growing up, were you a cops and robbers kind of kid? Did you always want to grow up to be a police officer? Oh yeah. I grew up in the Bronx off the side of the cross Bronx expressway, lower middle-class family. We didn't have much. So growing up in the seventies and eighties, we didn't have video games. So we went out, like you said, cops and robbers and built forts and shot fireworks at each other and Things nowadays that people are like, what the hell are they doing? That's dangerous. Which back then we didn't really have a roadmap or there were no helmets. We rode bicycles without foam <laughs> coolers on our heads. And it was a different world. But yes, I always knew I wanted to be a police officer. My mom used to take me to a movie theater around the corner from the movie theater was a police station. So on our trips to the movie theater, I would look at the police cars and I'd watch the cops out front. And my mother sometimes would walk me past and I would talk to the police officers and they were always nice and friendly. By the age of 10, my friends and I used to go into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall, <laughs> walk around the neighborhood and go on manhunts. So I knew wow. what I wanted to do from the age of five, 10 years old. I knew I was going to become a New York City police officer. Wow. I have to tell you, I used to play Charlie's Angels with my friends. <laughs> yeah, that was all. I, that was a must watch in my house for my brother and I. <laughs> I remember, like, I'm telling you, I think I was the, the Cheryl Ladd character, Chris. But it, it, it didn't go past I know she did, but yeah, she was my favorite. Did you know any police officers personally? Were there any in your family growing up? No, no. I was the first. And then my younger brother followed me into the department a couple of years after I Ooh. hired. Wow. And so what was the process? When did you start training? So it, it's a big process to get in. So first you have to pass the test and then it, you get a list number and then they start calling you based on that list number. And then- First, you're assigned a detective or a cop from the police applicant screening unit and the amount of paperwork. I just remember it, it seemed like days of filling out paperwork. And they went to my neighborhood. They spoke to my neighbors. They mm. contacted every person I ever had worked for, which was a problem for me because when I graduated high school, I just wanted to be a cop. And that was two and a half years away. So it was like, catch me if you can. I would go to work and have one job and come back with another. So my investigator hated me because she had to go to a series and interview all these people. I never got fired for anything or being discourteous to somebody who was stealing something was I got bored. You know what I mean? 18 years old, I really didn't want to clean airplanes at LaGuardia Airport or unload trucks for UPS, but I had to do it to keep busy and right. have a job. After that, then you go through a series of psychological exams, physical exams. There's a chat with a psychiatrist or a psychologist, I forget. There's drug screening involved. And then once you're cleared for that, then it, once they have a police academy class, 
you're called in and New York City Police Department at any given time is between 30 and 35,000 members. So we hire in bulk. So a small police academy class would be 250 recruits. Ooh. A large one would be 2,500. I was in mid-size. I got hired with 1,200 other people. And wow. I don't know now, but back then the police academy was, was six months of training. After that, if you graduated, then you went on to field training where you were assigned a sergeant and they dropped you off on foot posts and you got to learn how to talk to people and handle different calls. And then sometimes they put you in a vehicle with the sergeant to go and respond to different calls. And there's just so many things you're responsible for as a cop. I mean, everything from, God forbid, someone dies in their residence, we call it sitting with a DOA. You're there until the funeral home comes or the medical examiner comes and says, no, this seems like a suspicious death. The body has to go to the morgue for an autopsy. And then you have the action ones, robbery in progress, burglary in progress, mediating disputes between business owners and domestic violence calls. So you're responsible for quite a bit. What would be your guess as to how many people actually finish? Like, I would assume that some people go into it expecting it to be very different than what it oh, is yeah. and decide not for me or just don't make it through. That's funny you should say that. So before we even got into the academy, they had us at FIT, Fashion Institute, in their auditorium. And it was like a couple of days of filling out more paperwork. And I remember people dropping out in the auditorium just before we got into the police academy. I remember a couple of people got pulled out of the police academy. So that's another thing. If they find out that you lied or put something on or omitted or something in your background, and that comes up in that two-year period, you're gone because you're on probation mm -hmm. for two years. So if you know they find something they don't like, they can fire you with cause for any reason. So I remember a couple of people in the police academy, like they would here today, gone tomorrow. I would think, just I don't know this to be true, but if I was in a class of 1,200, I would think probably 100 either dropped out or got yeah. pulled out. And there were people that got pulled. I remember even before we got in the door during the physical, I remember there were people with hernias that got pulled off the line. I remember people getting pulled off the line because a chest x-ray came back that they found something. Yeah. Oh, you know, God. There were, yeah, there were some people, you know, they thought they were in perfect health and they're getting run through that thing and they find out that unfortunately there's something wrong with them. I'd say about a hundred, maybe. Wow. So one thing you talk about in, in your book is you talk about how during the training process, they do a lot of talk about corruption oh, and yeah. about, about the whole say, if you see something, say something that you said they brought in people that would talk about experiences that they went through going to jail videos. Yeah. That was pretty interesting to me that they do do that. With yeah. You. If there's the, the NYPD gets a lot of things wrong. But the one thing I will say they get right, they tell you the day you get hired, you will be fired if they catch you screwing around. And you're right, in the police academy, every day that was drilled into our head, they had internal affairs come several times and speak to us. And internal affairs is so compartmentalized, there's different groups that go after different things. And they had the major case squad that was telling us about these horror stories. We watch videos of ex-NYPD members that did jail time, what it was like to go to jail and the whole process of how they went bad. They had special prosecutors tasked with going after police corruption come in and explain to us the process and what can happen to you. So make no mistake about it. You're told up front, don't screw around or you're out the door. And through my NYPD career, it's true. If you see something, you have to say something because you're just as guilty not saying something. 
You know what I mean? So say you and I are working together and I know you're up to no good. Eventually you're going to get found out. And then it's going to be at one point, what did he know? And how long did he know about it? You know what I mean? And I've seen people get fired for being complicit in something like not even really being a part of it, but knew what was going on and looked the other way. You'd hope, I was reading about that, which was great. And then you mentioned the brotherhood, that there's a brotherhood, which you would hope because when anytime you work in a field where there's danger, you want to know that people have your back. But it's funny because when you talk about the whole see something, say something, it made me think of every police show I've ever watched when something happens and they bring in the IAB and nobody likes the internal affairs. So it almost seems like it must be, I'm asking, it must be a little tough for some people to find that balance of protecting the brotherhood while also feeling safe to call stuff out. It's got to be tough. Not really, because... <laughs> Nobody wants to work with somebody that's handsy, that's putting their hands on people that they shouldn't, or taking things that doesn't belong to them, or being abusive to people, because then it makes everybody look bad. Yeah. When I first got hired, internal affairs, you're right, was nobody liked them, and, but for good reason, because in the old days, prior to the Giuliani administration, internal affairs were people that went there, stayed there forever. And a lot of them were inside people that never had any street time. They were hiding. They would go in there, get their detective shield, or was someone that studied for the sergeant's exam and didn't want to go out on the street. And no one's watching IEB. So these guys were doing whatever mm. they wanted. They were shopping. No one was watching them. They weren't punching a clock. What Giuliani did is, and it's really interesting. So what they did, they said, yeah, we got to get the deadwood out of internal affairs. We want to be proactive. And we want cops to trust internal affairs. So what they started doing is it kind of works like this. So say I'm a detective in narcotics, right? I'm in narcotics two, three years. I get promoted to sergeant. You don't go right back to narcotics. you got to go to a precinct and you got to do a couple of years in a precinct as a sergeant. Then you can put in for the Organized Crime Control Bureau. Again, you can put in for narcotics, auto crime, vice, a specialized unit as a sergeant. Now, it, when Giuliani came in, they run that process like the NFL draft. So say there's a bunch of people that have experience in vice, narcotics, robbery, right? We want to go back to where we came from, right? It's interview process. When you go for an OCCB interview, you're going to have supervisors from vice, auto crime, OCID, all these specialized units, and internal affairs sits on that board, and they get the first pick. So you go in there and they're asking you questions. They're looking at your record. Here I come, right? I've got narcotics experience. I did search warrants. I worked on wiretaps. I'm squeaky clean, right? Internal affairs will go, we want him. And there's nothing you can do about it. And you go to internal affairs as a sergeant, but now you're a hell of a lot sharper than someone that was like the community affairs officer or the priest. This guy worked on wiretaps. This guy knows all right. about drugs. <clears throat> we want him. So then what happens is you got to go and you go to internal affairs. So I think, I think the commitment was two years. And then after you put in your two years with IEP, you can stay. And if you stay, that puts you on the fast track to getting specialized pay. But most guys and girls, they said, all right, we did our two years. We know what it's like. I want to go back to where, and then they will basically make hmm. it easy for you to go to a specialized unit that worked because now you trust them. Now you know people there you can go to and say, listen, someone knows the difference between perception and reality. So they got that right. And a lot of my supervisors in auto crime and narcotics came from IEB. And there wasn't a stigma because they were good cops. They 
went to IB. They didn't volunteer. They got drafted. They did their time. And then they worked in a precinct. And then those supervisors had more of a rapport with internal affairs because they knew somebody they could call. I guess it's the mutual respect comes in because it's very different from learning a job by doing it and by reading about it, like anything else. There's right, only so much right, you can right. do on paper versus what happens when you're doing it. So I, that, that actually does make, it makes a lot of sense. One thing I liked about your books too, and your stories that you tell, I've heard you on other podcasts, is <laughs> you don't pretend that everything is glamorous. There's a story that you share about how you were literally caught with your pants down yeah. fighting for your gun. And that's a great, that's a great story. <laughs> Yeah, um, I made this four kilo arrest on a car stop. I was all proud of myself. It was early in my career. I tell the story. I'm parading around the station house with four kilos of coke like I won the Stanley Cup. <laughs> Later that night, I had to go down to Bronx Court and meet with a district attorney to draw charges on these guys. And across the street from the courthouse was a new food court that had opened. I went in there. I got something to eat. My stomach went bad. I had to use the men's room in this food, in this new shopping center. I went into the men's room. It was no one was in there. I took off my gun belt. I hung it on the hook in the bathroom door. I dropped my pants. I was getting ready for liftoff. And <laughs> teenagers came running into the bathroom in there. They're hitting the hand dryers, turning the sinks. They're beating each other up in the men's room. And then all of a sudden it got quiet. And I said, did they see my legs or did they decide to stop? And I'm like, it was weird. And I said, you know what? I better finish up and get the hell out of here. And I looked up and one of the kids had gone into the next stall, jumped up on the toilet, and he was hanging over the wall trying to grab my gun belt. So I said, oh, shit. So I jumped up with my left hand trying to pull up my pants and grabbed him with my right. And when I did that, I pulled him closer and he latched onto the gun belt. I let go of my pants and now it's a hockey fight. So now I've got him with my right hand. I'm a righty and I'm punching him with my left hand, telling him, let go of the gun belt, let go of the gun belt. His friends run into the next stall and now they're pulling him. And now I'm in a tug of war with like a 16 year old. Finally, he dropped the gun belt. That was my concern, not him at that moment. When the gun belt hit yeah. the floor, I grabbed it. I pulled up my pants. I put on the gun belt. I run out, they're gone. I run into the food court, they're gone. And like I write in the book, what was I supposed to do at that point? Call the police on myself? I'd be the laughing stock of the Bronx if I went that route. So I kept the story to myself for 30 years until I wrote a book. <laughs> oh my God, that's hilarious. And so you mentioned, again, like the concern was your gun. And you talk also about how obviously it's a big deal if a police officer loses their gun. But then there's another story about somebody you knew who wanted to protect their gun. Who oh, yeah. They were afraid... Yeah, so, so all NYPD cops are paranoid about losing their gun, their shield, or the police identification card. If you lose any one of those things, and they don't want to hear it, you can have the most, most believable story in the world. You're going to take a hit. You're going to lose 30 vacation days, and they're going to put you on a year probation. And that was then. God only knows what it's up to now. So there was a guy we knew, and he wasn't the brightest of guys, and he lived in a shitty neighborhood, and he was afraid of a burglary, and he was going out one night, and he didn't want to bring his gun with him because he was going to be drinking. So he hid his gun in the one place he didn't think anybody would look was his stove, went out, got liquored up, came home after a couple of cocktails, and decided to preheat his oven to 425 to make some frozen pizzas. He went in the living room and started channel surfing and bullets and this gunpowder and bullets and 425 or whatever he preheated it to. The rounds started going off in the stove. So he's like, I'm sure like the first one, he was like, what the fuck was that? And then the second one, <laughs> oh, 
And he had to crawl out of his apartment on his hands and knees while his gun was shooting at him and call 911 on himself. And then they had to have emergency service go in there and his gun was blown to bits. He needed a new oh. stove. And oh, by the way, he lost 30 vacation days and was put on a year of probation. So it backfired. Oh my, that literally backfired. That, yeah. That's crazy. It's funny. Okay. So that leads me to a question about like sick days and things like that. So one thing you, one thing I thought was very interesting too, is you talk about how police officers, you get sick days, but then you have to go see a doctor. And it seemed like you were saying that they're really just going to say you're fine. Go back. Yeah. Oh yeah. So whether you're injured or you wake up one morning and you have a sore throat, you're like, I'm not going into work. What you do is you call up, you call the health service division. And usually who they have staffing the health service division is either cops that are under, not suspended, but they're put on modified assignment for what, or restricted duty. So restricted duty is a long-term injury and they're okay. trying to get disability. So the NYPD, they put you in these units, like we call it like Siberia. They don't make it easy for you. Or you got cops that are, they're going to get fired and it's only a matter of time. So they put them where they can't get into trouble. But at the same time, it sucks for us. So you call up the health service division. So I wake up at five o'clock in the morning. I've got to do a seven to three in the morning. I can barely talk. You call the health service division. You call up, you say, I'm not coming in. So they give you a log number and everything. And like within two, three hours, they start calling you up. All right. When do you want to come in and see the surgeon? It's like, I can't even get out of bed. And it's like a bargaining thing. Then you make an appointment for two days from now or something. And then you go to see the police surgeon. and it's a doctor that the city hires. In my opinion, they weren't the best and brightest and they didn't care. I remember one time I had a leg injury and he's talking to me about my shoulder and I'm like, no, that, that's not why I'm here. And he's like, yeah, all right, you're fine. Dominus Vobiscum. And you know, yeah, it's, and I get it because with 35,000 members, you're going to get a lot of scam artists going through, but they basically treat everybody like you're a scam artist. Yeah. You know, and I have to say, it's not that comforting to know that my, if, the police officers in my neighborhood are sick, stay home. I don't want them to not feel well and be out there trying to do their job. I want them to be yeah. feeling pretty good. You yeah, know, when they're, when I'm sick coming into work and getting everybody else sick. Yeah. Well, that doesn't seem a little counterproductive. Also, when I, okay, this is, it's going to sound even stupid coming out of my mouth, but I'm going to say it anyway. So you worked in narcotics and something I remember seeing, maybe it was like in the 80s on TV shows, but there was always this thing where if somebody's working under, not just narcotics, but someone's working undercover, yeah. that if their target asks the question, are you a cop? That they have to say yes. And I know that's not true because I can imagine somebody being undercover, really planning a whole thing, saying goodbye to their family, and then they start their first day and someone goes, are you a cop? And the whole thing is blown. But that was a thing, wasn't it? Like on TV oh, and in movies? It's the thing about TV, but it, that it's, it has nothing to do with reality. I remember yeah. one time I was meeting with some guy to buy a stolen car. And I was, it was later in my career. I was in my forties and I had the look and I know the lingo. And he started with that. How do I know if you're a cop? I'm like, you know what? Get the fuck out of here. I don't need your car. And, and you play on their greed, but you got to be willing to walk. It's like, all right, all right, all right. Sorry. I'm like, what the fuck is this? When I yeah. them up, but yeah, no, that, that's a thing from T. I don't know where that started. You know what I mean? It, it, <laughs> so it's silly. No, it's an urban legend. And, and how does it work with drugs? Because also you'll see in movies where sometimes they'll have to partake. Or how do you get around that oh, if you're working? You don't get around. NYPD has a zero, and I mean zero 
drug policy. You could be working on the most sensitive thing in the world. And if you get randomly drug tested and you turn up positive, you're out the door. There's no trial, jury, excuse. Really? You're gone. No, there's no rehab. Goodbye. Now, what happens is, and it has happened in narcotics, sometimes on some of these buy and bust operations where a guy will go up into an apartment, you'll have a couple of guys in there and there's a gun on the table and they'll say, you're here to buy a couple of dime bags of heroin or a couple of bottles of crack. And they'll go, yeah, take a hit. And you're like, nah, mm -hmm. nothing for me today. Thanks. It's called force <laughs> ingestion. And we have had that happen where an undercover gets a gun pointed at him. It's like, you're going to take a hit and they will. And then within seconds, that door is coming off the hinges Everybody okay. in that apartment's getting locked up, and that's the end of the case. That that's Ooh. it. That's thank you for playing Nintendo. That's it. Yeah, because once that happens, they're going and they think that undercover's in danger. That door's coming off the hinges. Ah, wow. Okay, because I was gonna say there have got to be times when they don't have a choice because it, it is never happened be. when I was there. It never happened to any of my undercovers, like while I was working. But it did happen while I was in narcotics several times with different teams. Not a lot. Yeah. I think twice the, the year and a half I was there. And then what, what happens is after a forced yeah. ingestion, they take them off the undercover status. That's it. You're no longer an undercover. They'll make you an investigator and you don't have to do that anymore. Why is that? Because they don't want that to happen again. Uh, wow. What's the biggest bus that you've worked on? Or been involved with? A couple. I worked on one. I, I was like the tambourine player in this band, but our Queens office did a case with John Gotti's son-in-law that was, uh, he was running an area of Queens where basically for you to open up a junkyard or a body shop or a glass place, anything in the auto industry in this neighborhood, you had to pay him. And uh, we had undercovers. We set up a junkyard with cops working in there and he came in and extorted us. And then we had to use his sanitation company and his oil waste disposal company and the case went on for about a year and a half and he wound up getting eight years. But again, I was like, again, the tambourine player. I worked on another case where we had people shipping 30 stolen vehicles a month to uh, Shanghai. So that was a pretty big case. And then while we were on wiretaps, we learned that the car thieves were in the murder for hire business. So it was like one of these cases Ooh. where it kept going in different directions. Let me ask you this. Why did you decide to start writing about it? Maybe you decided you wanted to start writing... Yeah, of course. Yeah, I got bored. <laughs> no, and I never, when I was active and even years after I retired, I never thought to write a book. I'm like, who wants to read what I think? And uh, friends and family kept, you got all these stories and I go to a party or something and Vic's a retired NYPD detective and I'd tell any stories. Oh, you got to write a book. You got to write a book. And I was very apprehensive about doing it. I, and say. I wrote the first one and it started selling and I wrote the second one. So it's just evolved. Now, were you able to write openly? Did you have to go through certain channels to see what you could talk about and what you couldn't talk about? No, <laughs> no, it's like, it's not like, no, it's not like I took it. Oh, it's not the mafia. It's like, I wasn't sworn to secrecy. I will say this. When I got into writing these books, I didn't want to get anybody divorced or embarrassed or in trouble. So with my books, I changed the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks. I might move a character from one story and put him in another, but the genesis of these stories happened, but I might embellish or move things around, but it's, right. I had a front row seat at the circus for 20 years. So I've got plenty of material. So I've known a few police officers in my day 
And it's funny because there were two specifically, there was one that I knew that really felt quite scarred by, he became a staff sergeant and was really quite traumatized by the whole thing and would tell people not to go into the profession. I knew another one who loved it. What's your general feel around, around working in that? Well, I could see, this is what I saw and I got hired early. I was 21 you can get hired as 20. And I know I'm going to offend people saying this, but what I noticed is it's better to go into law enforcement in your early 20s when you're flexible. You don't know any better with a lot of things. You're more apt to yeah. try different things, looking into different units. Your curiosity, it, as you get older, you, you get more rigid and stiff in your thinking. So I saw a lot of cops that came in later through the door, like in their 30s, and they had more formed opinions. It's the same as the military. They want you to mold you a certain way. I saw like a lot of the ones that were in their 30s that had families already. You got a guy that was an accountant and a wife and three kids. He's not going to go set the world on fire, make an arrest and because he's got obligations. In the back of mm. his mind, he's already in his 30s. He's already thinking, I have mortality. When you're in your 20s, you don't think you're going to get killed. You don't think you're going to die. I never gave it a second thought. I never really did. I think it's if you go in earlier in that particular career, you will thrive. Whereas if you go in later, that's not to say that you can't go in later and have a, a wonderful career. But what I noticed was the cops that really got it and were more active were the ones that started young yeah. in the profession. It's interesting that you brought up what you just said, because there was a question I was going to bring up later from one of my listeners who wanted to say that you were in a profession where there was mortality at stake, where it is scary. And her question was, how did your family deal with that? Or how did you deal with that? But you said you didn't even, you were too young to <laughs> think about it. Yeah. My family was just happy. I had a job. It was like a two year or two and a half year tap dance from the time I graduated high school to get into that police academy because my parents like had it up to here with me. But my dad, I think my dad, believe it or not, worried about me more than my mother. I think my mom was like, he's got this. You know, my dad yeah. was up, towards the end of my career. My, I remember my dad's like, you only got two years left. Stop getting involved in these cases. My dad doesn't work like that. I'll go after a less violent mobster this week. <laughs> my dad doesn't work that way. I've heard that there's a bit of a rivalry, maybe a friendly rivalry, maybe not so friendly between police officers and firefighters. Yeah. I, yeah, there is. Okay. Cause I, full disclosure, briefly dated a police officer a few years ago. And he would tell me that there was this huge rivalry for years. I would go at Christmas time, I would bring cookies to fire station, a police station. And I remember the first time it was 1995 bringing cookies to a police station. And I remember they were shocked. The police officers were like, What are you doing? I'm like, This yeah. is just for you. And they're like, you And I remember, I so remember so many years ago, I remember him going, You don't want to swear at us or anything? <laughs> like, no, we're just because they were so not used to just somebody being nice. Yeah. I don't want to know what department, but where, what state was your boyfriend from, the guy that was a cop that didn't like fire? We're in Canada. We're in Canada. Oh, so, oh yeah. it goes as far as Canada, huh? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Wait till I tell one of my friends down. We're like, <laughs> everything was up, it was fine up there. And I could speak to New York. It was like the late 80s, early 90s. I know how it works in New York. And uh, as I remember it, this is 30 over 35 years ago, we were all in parity with getting a contract with the city and our union, the corrections unit, the sanitation and the fire department. We were all holding steady. We weren't going to take a deal with the city. 
We're trying to bring them to, the, I think, binding arbitration or something. And the fire department saw an inn and they took a contract which made it easier for the city than to deal with us. So we're like, why, why would you do that? Now, of course, it's their head. The guy, it's not the guy that's putting out fires that works in the firehouse. But then there was a couple of incidents. Firemen and cops play two different sets of rules. I think in FD, if they get tested, drug tested or something, they send them to rehab. And there was a couple of times where cops like would stop firemen like up in the heights buying coke or something, and they would want to break and it's like, no, you're getting locked up just like everybody else. You're coming out of a building with an ounce or whatever it is. No, you're going like everybody else. And there was an incident where the fire department wanted a couple of guys in the street trying to move their truck or something. And one of the firemen hit a cop in the face with something. It got ugly for a while. There was definitely a rivalry. They used to have an annual hockey game and there were more fights in the stands. <laughs> oh, oh, no oh, really? Shit out of each other. Oh, I was like, what the fuck? I didn't get involved in it, but we were like, what the hell? It was just, they were like fight breaking out all over the place. That's hilarious. My aunt's from Canada. I kind of said, not in the stands. Yeah, stand, you guys love hockey. I know, but on the ice. What, so what would you say if you had to pick like your favorite part of the whole job, something you miss. Is there anything you miss? I miss the car chases. Oh, <laughs> I was involved in so many car chases. Yeah. Oh boy, sitting on a stolen car, waiting for the person to get in it, trying to box them in traffic, pull them out of the car while they're boxed in. They don't even see you coming. Or when they do see you coming, it's off to the races. And oh yeah, I miss that. Sure. That's aggressive. total cops and robbers stuff. That's the stuff that you think yeah. about when you're a little kid. So what's I'm something that, that you're still a little kid? Probably. What's something that you don't miss at all? Going to New Year's Eve, you go to Times Square. I did that oh, 17 God. out of 20 years, working riots, large demonstrations. The NYPD, oh. what type of specialized unit that you were in? They didn't think twice about sending you somewhere. Every holiday I was going somewhere. Hey, Thanksgiving okay. morning, you're down in the work in the parade. The night before Thanksgiving, which is a great night to go out, you're in Central Park watching them blow up the balloons in, on the west side of Manhattan. <laughs> or you do get to see a lot of cool things that, that most people would never see or think about. I could have done without getting up at three o'clock in the morning to go to some tugboat strike in Brooklyn or those newspaper strikes back in the day. Those were ugly. Mm -hmm. Those news, those truck drivers, they'd be throwing stuff. And I mean, it, yeah, I don't miss like getting thrown in uniform and you'd be out in Coney Island on July 4th at 90 degrees or 100 degrees in that polyester uniform. Mm -hmm. Good for a lost kid in Coney Island. Good luck. You know what I mean? Right. Things like that. <laughs> Yikes. Okay, so I want to ask you, like I said, I have a few listener questions yeah, to sure. throw at you. That's okay. okay, so Justin wanted to know what was the most terrifying or nerve-wracking experience that you could remember? Oh, I've had several. We pulled over a car one time. The guy was, it was like a Saturday morning. The guy was out clubbing. You could tell he was out all night wearing like a silk shirt, reeked of Paco Rabanne, and he had the <laughs> taillight out. And I kept seeing him screw around with his waist. And I said, step out of the car. Let me show you the taillights out. And when he got out, I seen him adjust his waist again. And I shoved my hand in his pants and he had a nine millimeter. And we both grabbed onto the gun and we were fighting for it. And the two of us were banging off this car. It was a path mm. And my partner came running around the side of the car. And I'm like, shoot him. And he goes, what? I go, shoot him. Gun. He goes, are you sure? I go, shoot this motherfucker. And my partner, just to his credit, cracked him. And when he hit him, the guy went wow. and the gun popped up. It was one of those things where when your adrenaline's going like that, and you're like in the fight of your life for something, you can't lose. You're not worried about getting a hernia. 
You're not worrying about getting hurt a little bit or if going for this gun for a reason, he's not going to run. He didn't try to run. He wants to pull this gun out and kill me. Yeah. I mean, I've had a couple of those where it's like for that couple of seconds, it's like you, you just see your light flash before your very eyes. You really do. Wow. Claudia wanted to know how 9-11 affected you personally or your police work. I was down at ground zero by 1.30 in the afternoon. It was like something out of a, a horror movie because nobody really knew what to do. There really wasn't nothing to do. And they had us walking around down there and they gave us these little bullshit paper masks you would get at Home Depot. And the closer you got to ground zero, the darker it got because of all that volcanic ash that was in the air. The sunlight had difficulty getting through the particles and just like something out of a horror movie. There was this tremendous pile of rubble. There was really nobody down there but us just walking around. And it was like something out of a science fiction movie. By that point in my career, I had 14 years in, I had seen quite a bit. You don't go to pieces because you say to yourself, you can, you can to be effective in that job, you got to be able to compartmentalize things. And it's okay, this is really bad. I got to fight through it. I got to get through this. And tomorrow will be another day. And I did. They had us down there for a while doing the bucket brigade, like passing debris down. Then for a while, I was down at the dump. They had us chopping up the cars to see if there was anybody trapped that had gotten crushed. Yeah. In the car. So did it affect me? I, it was a terrible thing. It was probably one of the worst things I ever saw, but I don't have nightmares about it. Or I don't really think about it every day. It's just, it's just one of those terrible things that happened. And I know it's there, but... It doesn't affect me in day-to-day -day life. I would think that really would depend on person to person. I think that you're right, that having the ability to compartmentalize like that, you have to. In certain fields, you have to, or else you'd be destroyed every day. Something every day would, would tear you apart. A lighter question that Lisa wanted to know was, what's the best food to take on a stakeout? Most <laughs> cops eating a car. It's and it's funny because you work with guys and they'll bring something home and they'll nuke it and then they'll jump in the car. Oh, what the fuck? What is that? It stinks up the car. Best thing to eat on a steakhouse, something that's not going to make you go to the bathroom <laughs> five minutes later. Sometimes you can't leave the car depending on the neighborhood or you're sitting in a surveillance van that's parked overnight. And, you know, you got a bucket. Um <laughs> Best food, I'm half Italian, probably a real Parm hero and a soda. <laughs> so let me ask you this. There are so many have been past and present police shows and movies. What do you think? What's your favorite? I don't really watch them, but I will say the really? one that gets it right. The one that gets it right is Law and Order. Is because it? Oh, good. That's my favorite. You know, think about it, right? There's a crime at the beginning of the show. The detectives show up. They start asking questions. They start interviewing witnesses. They go to the prosecutors. They want a search warrant or want to arrest the guy. The prosecutor goes, hold off. You got to bring us more. They bring more. They make the arrest. And then it goes to the prosecutorial part of it. Right? And then you got the district attorney's office cross-examining people. And everything comes full circle in a nice little bow. It doesn't always work that way, but that's about as close as it gets. I love Barney Miller. That's actually mm -hmm. pretty accurate the way a detective squad works, but it's a lot more edgy than Barney Miller because there is a lot of ball breaking that goes on. I remember growing up, my father used to watch Barney Miller. So I remember that one. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Vic. Before you go, I want you to tell everyone where to find your books. Sure. And everything. Yeah. So 
My name is Vic Ferrari. Just go to the Amazon book section, type in my name. I've written a series of books, NYPD Law and Disorder, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, the NYPD's Flying Circus, Cops, Crime, and Chaos. There's a story in there. A guy I know stole a horse and carriage for a ride through Central Park. Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's Auto Crime Division. It's everything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry and afraid to ask. And this is an NYPD. <laughs> it's called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. Got a picture of a kid in a Catholic high school uniform getting chased out of a confessional. Yes, that did happen to me. I did deserve it. But... <laughs> It's basically about my childhood of growing up in the Bronx and what led me to becoming a member of the New York City Police Department. I love that you did this. It was an enjoyable book to read. I'm going to go back and read the, read the rest of them. But you're a fun guy to talk to and you really humanize something that I said is, could be pretty controversial. So I appreciate you sharing your stories in such a real way. I appreciate it. When I got set out to do, we were talking just before we went on air and I didn't do this to become a personality. But you are a personality. You've got. Like, oh, I'm definitely a character. <laughs> I know that these podcasts and people like yourself with podcasts and radio stations and nice enough to listen to me and put me on your forums. It sells books. So go out there and buy my books. They won't send bucks. <laughs> all right. Well, we will put all that information in our show notes. And again, thank you for coming on to how to ruin your own reputation with me. Thank you so much. And stay warm up there in Canada. Oh, I'm going to try. You too. Oh, no, you're in Florida now. Florida. <laughs> Oh, geez, you got it right. All right, well, take care, Nick. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening. See you next week.